Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Financial unfair play. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual... We'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, thanks, Dan. You know, for us, a North London derby victory, which is always nice. Um, but even better still, some really good football and some, you know, as usual, some controversial moments to get stuck into. Oh, there's certainly loads of those this week. And this week, I've decided to rotate the lineup, which means it's time for the long overdue return of Fulham fan Matthew Baldwin. Matthew, how have you been, my friend? I've been very good, although I'm not happy with the uh, issue of being me, me being rotated. Makes me think I'm some sort of super sub that you bring. I'm mean, the Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer of the Real Football fan cast. So hopefully I'll be managing Man United one day, but we'll, we'll wait and see on that front. You never know. Stranger things have ha- certainly happened. Right, before we chat all things football, I'll do the social media bits first. I will be talking to the Abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Stan Tracy, 983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow or join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe. And if you like it, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find us on SoundCloud and audio boom. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Right, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Let's go to the Etihad again. We started there last week, but this week it's not on the pitch. It's in the course of arbitration because, Cole, Man City have had their ban removed and I guess their legal team will have earned every penny of their efforts. 
yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I don't think many of us were really truly shocked, were we? To be honest, you know, when when it broke, we kind of thought, oh, this could be really interesting. But then we did say, didn't we, at the time, City would throw, you know, everything they had at it. And when you consider the sort of money they've got available and that to them, you knew that the kind of people they were going to get involved were top class and would probably see them get this overturned. Um, and yeah, in a way, you know, everyone was clinging on to that hope when they did it was going to be the top five. Um, I didn't really ever see it being that case. I just always felt money talks and, and City would get this overturned. And it turns out that, that that's the case. They're, they're back in. Um, a small little fine, which to Man City will be nothing compared to the fact that, you know, just being back in the Champions League gets rid of a massive headache for them. Um, and yeah, you know, what can you say? It, it just goes to show again that, you know, FFP and now UEFA have kind of just made themselves look the, the clowns that they are, really. So, Matthew, how much of a bitter pill will this be for UEFA to swallow? Because I guess, in a sense, this policy or this sort of um, set of rules they've always wanted to claim a big scalp haven't they you know to say this really works now though they're not stringent at all because now they have to really go back to the drawing board and say actually is it really working at all well i think we need to sort of remember one thing because i know a lot of anger is going to be placed at uefa for this but you know oh uefa ffp rules don't work in fairness uefa were enforcing the ffp rules of you know what they believe they believe man city broke the rules it's just you know the court of arbitration that sort of blew this up so that, that's a different but that's a different matter um yeah i mean i'm not exactly a financial es- expert i think isa is something you put in the freezer so i'm not <laughs> going to talk about i'm not going to talk about the, the specifics of it because i don't know as i'm sure many people don't know but i think it is you know back to what you were saying it is going to be a question of are the rules being enforced well uefa are enforcing the rules or at least trying to enforce the rules but there's always this way of sort of you know weaseling weaseling out of it maybe they need to make the rules more stringent maybe they need to be loosened i don't know but this whole idea of ffp and spending beyond your means and trying to keep things fair and all that sort of stuff it needs to be controlled in some sort of way i don't know how that is going to become again it could be a uefa thing it could be a court of arbitration for sport thing maybe they need to um be the ones you know held responsible for enforcing uefa's rules i don't know i guess with the problem with the court of arbitration enforcing other people's rules is that arbitration is just trying to find a, a middle ground between two parties that are in some form of clash so it's very hard for them to sort of always be going oh let's just throw it to cast because otherwise UEFA are never really going to have any standpoint of their own. They can't really enforce anything. I'll stay with you, Matthew, because UEFA will say the process is working, like you've alluded to, because when you look at the amount of money that clubs were losing, I think it was something eye-watering, like £1.1 billion a while back ago. That's turned into a £500 million collective profit from all these big clubs. So yes, they can say it's working, but if you cannot enforce it at its highest level, then perhaps it's not working after all. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really sort of being brought up to to catch the big fish, as it were. You know, the PSGs and Man City seem to be the two clubs that are, uh, you know, in the eye of the storm. You know, again, going back to the numbers, for all I know, the collective losses or whatever it was, of 500 million. It could be that every single club in world football is abi- or in European football is abiding this perfectly well. And it's Man City and PSG because of their reckless spending that are, you know, are contributing £250 million each, for all we know. So, yeah, they are trying to catch a big fish in that sense. But uh, I don't know. It, it is it is a weird one because you have to try and... 
at some point this does have to be brought back to some form of normality and the thing is with the you know uh clubs are going to go through financial problems because the lack of uh fan money and so which you know is a small percentage but clubs are going to have to keep spending uh to try and get themselves out of the situation that they're they're in at the moment so when it's going to end i just i just honestly do not know so carl i guess the fundamental question now is is the concept of ffp is it dead where's the deterrent from another club to go on a big spree themselves I think, like as you say, if if you look at say say the Newcastle, wasn't it? The Newcastle bid would be a prime example. You know, when you consider the money that potentially those new Newcastle owners have got, you could then kind of say now, couldn't you? That if you're them looking at this, you could kind of go, well, hold on a minute, we may as well go in there and just go and spend, 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 and make sure we start winning leagues and Champions Leagues potentially. Because what is the worst case that might happen here? And that is we just get something like a £9 million fine. Now, I think if you look at the Man City situation, I think somebody said, you know, the the guy who owns Man City, they turned around and said, this guy earns X amount over how many hours? That £9 million fine will be paid off within half a day. <laughs> so there's no deterrent, is there, to Man City? Because it's just like, what's nine million to us? It's not a problem. Nine million, here you go. Yes, you know, to us, we all sit there and go, <clears throat> nine million, oh my God, what's going on? And to most small sides, they wouldn't want to get themselves involved in that because that would see them go to the wall. But these big sides we're talking about, PSG, you know, Man City, these people who could potentially be buying Newcastle, that money is nothing to them. And they would take that hit if it meant they can get the stuff that goes along with it, like the, you know, the prize money and everything else. And, you know, the worldwide fan base and the merchandising money that comes in, the sponsorship money. So you do kind of think a nine million pound fine to me would just make me go if I've got that sort of money. I'll take the fine, thanks. Well, this is absolutely it, because when you look at it, the punishment does not fit the crime. You mentioned prize money. I think the figure quoted was somewhere in the region of, let's say, 150, 200 million for not being in the Champions League for two seasons. Really, any sort of fine should have been in that kind of scale. Take the 10 million, add a one, sorry, add a zero at least, 100 million. So yes, you're not banned from the Champions League, but you're not going to get the financial benefits either. Should that have been more akin to the punishment, Matthew? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we shouldn't really be, again, this is a court of arbitration thing. This isn't the UEFA thing. UEFA are trying their best to try and enforce it. So again, it's not really their rules that we should be angry about here. It's it's the court of arbitration for sort of, as you say, trying to find some form of some form of middle ground over, over this. Again, UEFA can put out as many punishments as they want. They did it a couple of years ago to Man City, I believe. You know, they could only have a squad of 23 or something along those lines for the yep. Champions League rather than 25. UEFA for have tried their best to try and say right cut this out but they again i don't know if the rule if it should be them that should be taking the blame for you know the amount of again because the uh, fine was sort of negotiated down so this isn't a uefa thing they are trying their best to you know disincentivize massive spending but then the court of arbitration just come in and say nah they're okay you let them carry on because I guess that's the weird thing about it, Carl, isn't it? Because the final punishment is only a £10 million fine. And it's not for being, I guess, breaking FFP. It's for not being a part of the process of you know, discipline and all that. So they've not been fully absolved. But if you're handing out a fine and there is some form of punishment, where do you stand in that sort of guilty, not guilty? It's almost a grey area, really, isn't it? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, the bottom line is a fine has to kind of put you off actually doing that sort of thing again in the future, doesn't it? You know, um, and, and like I say, you know, it's like the average man, if you find him a tenner for doing something really bad, it wouldn't put you off. It's the same in Man City. You know, you find them nine million, which is nothing to them. You won't put them off potentially trying to do what they've done before because they just go, listen, nothing meal to us is nothing. Do it because, the, the, you know, what we've break by, by breaking the rules, we're gaining more than what we're being punished for it. Um, so, as, you know, as we said, FIFA might be trying to implement this and getting the rug pulled out from under them. But then they've got to try and find a way where they can implement this, um, where that can't happen. And those teams that do break this rule are actually, you know, properly punished uh, and kind of can feel the ramifications that actually do make them go, no, we can't do this because we really don't want that to happen to us. Oh, I guess this is such a difficult situation to sort out, isn't it? Um but and like you say, when you've got teams like City, you can throw the kind of lawyers that they probably did at this. There's probably, you know, to try and shut every loophole or, or, or manage it so that they can't wriggle their way out of it, I think would be, you know, really hard. It's almost like whack-a-mole, really, isn't it? You find one loophole, close that, another one pops open. and Yeah, exactly, just, definitely. Just, just keeps going. <laughs> but, um, Carl, stay with you. So let's look at this from a sporting point of view. Will that ruling now give City an impetus to go and win this Champions League? Because there's no greater plot twist than after all that drama, they're lifting the trophy at the end of August. Yeah, I, I think, if I'm honest with you, I think actually being if they'd been out of it, probably would have given spurred them on even more yeah, to go point. and do it. Because if, if they suddenly, if this ban had been upheld, then, you know, can you imagine the embarrassment, or not the embarrassment, but kind of the red faces at UEFA when actually the team who've won it then are not allowed to defend it? Because then you kind of tinge the tournament a little bit, don't you? Because you're saying, well, actually, the team that probably are the best team in Europe or were last season are not actually in it this season. So I think they'd probably have had more of an incentive if they'd been banned. But given, I think, the way the league season has gone and the fact that they're going to miss out on the Premier League title and everyone is lauding Liverpool as the team, you know, the team to be, I think that's probably the motivation if I'm City to then say, listen, let's make sure we go and win the Champions League, the League Cup and the FA Cup because then we still come out and say, listen, three trophies last season, three trophies this season. We are still one of the best, the best side in world football. Yeah, fair point. I guess, Matthew, if they do that, they don't really miss a step. I know they don't win the Premier League, but they arguably swap it for a richer prize. And also, with the ban not going through, it stops the house of cards, which is, which is Manchester City, collapsing. You know, players could leave, Pep could have migrated off in 12 to 18 months' time, what have you. So the fact that that nucleus is now going to stay pretty much compact sets them up very good for the next challenge next season. Absolutely. And I will add one thing. I am very much looking forward to, if Manchester City do win the Champions League, I am looking forward to the moment where whoever does the presentation <laughs> ceremony for UEFA, it could be Giorgio Marchetti. I don't know who it, I don't know who does it these days, or it could be some like fan that won a competition. But someone from UEFA will be there during the ceremony, socially distant. Pep Guardiola, I would not blame him one bit when he picks up his medal to just flick the V, just right in his face. I, I wouldn't blame him and Kevin De Bruyne and all the other fans just as they're walking past, collecting their medals, to say, 
Try again next time, sucker. Sort of thing. But yeah, back to, but back to the initial point. Yeah, I think that was one of the sort of dangers that we were looking at with Manchester City. If you know, if this ban were uh, were to have been upheld, you know, because Pep Guardiola, it was his job to come and win the Champions League. And if he didn't win it this year because they got knocked out, and then you have the other two years, that you no, know, what's the point in him staying? Because I don't think he's really going to want to stay two years of not having any sort of European competition to try and to try and sort of motivate him. So what's the point in him staying? Kevin De Bruyne, would you, you know, he's a player that wants to stay in the Champions League. Would he have stayed? Raheem Sterling, uh, Phil Foden, although he's a Man City fan, so maybe different there. Um, but yeah, all these top class players that may have wanted to go elsewhere to try and win the Champions League if they didn't win it this year. So yeah, it, it does leave a little bit of a scary taste in the, in the back of the head to say, right, this Man City team that is, you know, arguably one of the greatest of all time, um, you know, going back from 2017 when they, you know, when they uh, won, won with 100 points um, all the way to now, one arguably one of the greatest teams of all time could are going to stay together and could become even better potentially. Right, let's move on from City because there's 19 other clubs we need to try and squeeze in within the next 45 minutes or so. So, Apologies if your team doesn't get a mention this week. That's it, Cole. We can probably do three at once in this first bit because over the course of the weekend, it seems that no one wants to finish either third or fourth in the table. Yeah, fair few teams just going, nah, go on, you have it. <laughs> nah, nah, we'd rather you have it, mate. Nah, go on. Um, yeah, really, some really strange results there, weren't there? And, and results that you just didn't see coming at all. Um, the Leicester one was probably one of the, you know, they must be looking at themselves. They'll be relieved, obviously, after last night. But that game at Bournemouth, you know, you're one up, you're playing really well. You, you know, you're on you're on track to kind of get a, a, an easy win and, and kind of help secure that Champions League football and to kind of just combust the way they did in the second half. Um, I don't think anyone saw that come in and, and what a waste of three points that was. Um, but like I say, then you think that's the perfect, you know, spurring moment for Man United last night and they can't throw it away, you know, and don't take control of the situation. So I think we may see a few more twists and turns in this race um, just towards the end. But I don't think you can say definitely yet who is going to get it because each team seems susceptible to kind of having one of those games where they throw it away and let another one in. Well, Matthew, we mentioned City. We'll mention one last time because that ban means that fifth place is not a prize anymore for the Champions League. That is, you know, if teams are finished outside it or winning Europa League, what have you. But in the sort of purest form of an escape route, shall we say, that's now closed. So this... Battle for third or fourth, or and fourth, it's really going to go down to the wire now, isn't it? It does, but am I right in thinking the third and fourth doesn't really make much of a difference these days because they both all go into the group stage? Um, what I will say in regards to Leicester City, I think they've sort of earned one bad result. The fact that they're sort of overachieving uh, the way they have now. Similar to Sheffield United, when they went and got trounced up at St. James's Park, they because of the way they've gone done so well this season, they've earned the right to have one bad game. Leicester City against Bournemouth, you know, with Soyuncu getting sent off in the way that he did, they get one. And if you look at the, res- the results they've had all season, all the losses that they've had, you can sort of un- you can sort of understand to some extent. So Leicester City, nothing wrong with them. Man United, that's the weird one, if I'm being brutally honest, because if there's a team that really needs the motivation, because Leicester City have sort of overachieved this season. Let's be honest with them. Manchester United are sort of underachieving the fact that they're fifth and now they're looking for fourth. The amount of pressure that's on them to finish fourth, how they can't see out a game against Southampton, who have got nothing left to play for, 
that's got to be the that's got to be the worrying thing if I was a if I was a Manchester United fan. The fact that they have this chance granted to you know put on a plate with them, and they can't and they can't finish the job off despite doing having a fantastic uh, display in the first half. I've got a theory about why they sort of hit the bricks last night. I'll get to that in a bit, but I want to come back to Leicester. And I'll stay with you, actually, Matthew, because you've sort of just got ahead of one of my points. You mentioned the fact that Leicester perhaps deserved a tonking, a collapse, if you will. But when you look at their post-restart form, it's one win in six. And we on the show, me and Carl, we were sort of talking pre-restart that um, they'd be fine, the top 14, they've earned that. You look at them now and you think, actually, I'm not overly confident they are losing form at just the wrong time. Uh, yeah, there is some extent to that. But again, are we sort of in danger of assessing what Leicester City have done compared to what they are? Because if Leicester City were to fall away and they fall away to sixth, that's still a great achievement for them. Let's not be let's not be hasty about this. They were still probably predicted to finish, I'd say, mid-table, probably eighth or ninth, eighth or ninth, I'd imagine. So even if they were to finish in Europe rather than just the Champions League, They've still done. They've still done. A, had a fantastic job. So I wouldn't really be too concerned. Obviously, it is a big difference, Champions League to Europa League. But they are still playing with house money to that extent. Yes, I guess. But also at the same time, if your start of season expectation is eighth or ninth, and you were sort of in and around eighth or ninth all season, then then fine. You've you've hit that. You might have gone up to fifth or sixth, and then dropped back down to where you are. Problem they've got is that when they were third for such a long time. And you talk about house money, they will almost put the house on Leicester, finishing the top four. Now you say, OK, if they get in the Europa League, not too bad. But surely, Carl, there would also be a huge tinge of disappointment if their new objective has not been met. Yeah, I always, you know, I mean, we've, we've kind of said it before, haven't we, Dan? You know, Spurs have had that. Like, oh, if you told me we'd be top four by the end of the season, I'd have taken it. When, you know, in January we were fighting for the title and you're sitting there going, well, we missed an opportunity by not bringing in a couple of faces. I, I Yeah, I'm like you. For me, I don't really buy that. That's like, well, yeah, but if you'd offered me that, I'd have taken it. Because it's like, well, no. You set your goals throughout the season and, you know, if you're suddenly within a title race, and you then suddenly drop out up to, say, fourth or fifth, to me, it's disappointing just to go, well, we'd have taken that, you know, initially. The view is we were there. And if you look at Leicester's situation, they were in the driving seat. You know, they, they were at one point, you know, second in the table. And, you know, all those behind were left, you know, trying to catch up and play catch up and looking like getting nowhere near it. So I think if we ended the season and they finished fifth or sixth now and missed out on Champions League, I think you'd have to look at it from them and say, well, that was a big disappointment because you were so far in the driving seat. And, you know, and again, when if you look at what it is that's cost them, Losing at Bournemouth, you wouldn't accept that given the sort of players and the way they're playing. And when you look at the performance, given the first half and the way this, they started the second, they were well in control. They just lost their heads. Um, you know, they've drawn home games that you since the restart that you'd go, well, no way should you be drawing that game against that team. So I do think if they were to miss out now, you would have to look back and go, mm, yes, there's a tinge of disappointment because you should have achieved more there. And, and they've, they've got a good squad. There's no doubt in that. So we're not sitting there saying it's the Leicester that maybe won the title where no one saw that coming. They have now got proven players and, and quality players. And you've got the league's you know, top goal scorer at the moment as well. And Matthew, one of those quality players will not feature for the rest of the season, that being Sun Chu. How much of an absence will he be to Leicester? 
Or, you know, are the issues running far deeper than that? Because you could say, OK, we're losing a key defender. They've got goals in the team, but they are shipping them at the other end. So how big of a miss will he be between now and game 38? Um, it's a, it's a, it's very much a big miss. You know, if we go back to what you know, Carl mentioned the title winning side, and that title winning side was based on you know you can you can rattle off the eleven players as as you know you can rattle off the eleven players that won the title. Then you can more or less rattle off the eleven players that play for Leicester now. The fact that they've had a, such a settled team throughout the season is going to be huge. Sir. And now they're missing you know one of the most underrated you know defenders in the league that Johnny Evans and Sonshi partnership has been fantastic for Leicester. Now one of those key ingredients is missing how much you know instability is that is that going to create it could be huge it could be you know captain wes morgan coming off the bench and being super you know super captain morgan once again we don't know it's very going to be very interesting to see how you know whoever steps in to play alongside johnny evans works out i guess looking at the century setting off you shouldn't laugh but there is quite a way to get sent off cole and that's not really the one is it the first time you watch it you think that's quite naughty and the second and third time you just watch the man getting booted in the back of the goal up the arse I, 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 you just couldn't believe it. No, could you? I mean, what, what a pointless sending off that was to get. Yeah, and it wasn't even like the Bournemouth player goes in, studs up on no. him, where you can think, well, yeah, I can see where the reactions come from. You know, it's gone in. You've gone into the net. He's just come in and tried to get the ball quickly, and just to do what he's done when you're thinking you're still in the game. Okay, you might, you know, you might be two one down now, but you've got a chance, especially with the players you've got on the pitch. To then just go and volley him like that, <laughs> uh, you just couldn't believe it. Could you? You couldn't believe when you're seeing it. You're just thinking it's a complete and utter heads gone moment. Yeah. And I'm afraid that is one of them that, as a manager, you would have a right to go in and almost like the Brian Clough and that, you know, kick a boot at someone and just say, I can't believe you've gone and just done what you've done there because you potentially now you've cost us this game. But also, as we're saying, the ramifications of losing you for these last few games, given how tight the race is now, could be that you've cost this club Champions League football, all because you just felt like you wanted to kick out uh, this guy pointlessly. You know, I couldn't believe it. Absolutely. He should be fined. You know, whatever their top fine is, I would be surprised if he doesn't get that and then double. Oh, yeah. Maximum fines dished out because, like you say, that could be the pivotal difference between fourth or fifth come the end of the season and Carl stay with you because although Leicester spurned their opportunity to go third they could have put some day up to themselves and Chelsea and Man United but for as hot as Chelsea blow they have been blowing a little bit cold as of late and there was more proof of that on Saturday as they lost to Sheffield United yeah yeah again this was the thing wasn't it you know Chelsea can seem to put a run together of a couple of games where they play really good and you're thinking oh yeah you know they're they're looking pretty tasty now, and, and you'd back them. And then they go and put in the sort of performances like they did against Sheffield United. You know where players like Rudiger are doing what they've done do for that last goal. The goalkeeper to me doesn't look potentially confident all the time. You know, um, I do think Chelsea's problems are still at the back. You know, I think they've got enough going forward to worry anyone. And again, they've made a couple of signings. You know, going forward next season, that you think, yep, they'll be exciting. I just think they, you know, if they really want to challenge and be serious contenders, they need to look at their defensive line because that's where the issue is. You know, Bayern tore them apart at Stamford Bridge, didn't they? And, and and Ajax and many teams have done the same to them this season on the odd occasion. And I think that's going to be their Achilles heel. You know, they can be, there's no problems going forward and attacking. 
that that defence, that can cost you games and points. And again, right now, you wouldn't be surprised, given the form of teams around there, that if they're going to defend like that more often, they could miss out here and then just end themselves up in the Europa League. Matthew, when we look at their defence, Kepa, as Carl's alluded to, he's still struggling to win people over. I believe he's the world record goalkeeper in terms of transfer fee. Will he be shipped in the summer? Will he be dropped? I know also that Willy Caballero's played probably too many games for someone of his age and of his quality. So are we looking at a bit of a bust in between the Chelsea goal? I think so. And I'd just like to uh, take a moment to say every single word that Carl, every single word that Carl said, you could just transpose that and, just, and say, for, say the exact same for Arsenal, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's the, exact same, it's the <laughs> Arsenal problem for the past couple of years. So it's funny It's funny how those things work out. But yeah, Kepa, I think because there has been talk about uh, Jan Oblak. I know his name's been sort of banded around the past couple of days about you know, a player plus cash deal. I don't know who's getting the cash in that situation. I assume Matalanko Madrid. Um yeah, so the fact that they are actively looking for a goalkeeper. I know Dean Henderson is another name that's been mentioned as well. Uh, kind of shows you that Kepa has been his his time has you no know, come and gone in you know in in English football, uh, despite it only being what two years. I think yeah, he's, I think two. yeah two years. Uh, and his you know the one when you think of Kepa Arizabalaga, what do you think of? You're not going to think of a great save, or you're not going to. The only thing you're going to think of is him having a row with Mauricio Sarri at Wembley. So I think that kind of sums up the impact that he's had probably at Chelsea and in English football. So yeah, I think it's very much easy, very easy to call him a bust at this stage. Of course, when you consider the conversation of the Premier League's top goalkeepers at the moment, he's nowhere near that conversation. You know, Pope, Henderson, Allison, Edison, Kepa, not even a top five, top ten goalkeeper. He's that. I wouldn't say ranked bad, but for the money they paid, like I say, label him as one of the big transfer busts of the last couple of years. So, Carl, Sheffield United, me personally, I was very guilty of labelling a team going through an early second season syndrome. What do I know? Because since I've said that, they've beaten Tottenham, Wolves, Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. We strike again, Dan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, not only that, they picked up 10 points out of the last 12 on offer. That's an incredible run of form, made me look silly and also keeps their European hopes alive. Yeah, and do you know what, Dan? I, I'm so pleased that that's happened in a way because they were one of the real success stories, weren't they, before the break? You know, and, and it wasn't just they were getting some lucky results. They were playing teams off the park, you know, this new overlapping centre-half system, you know, no real household names. But they played some brilliant football. You know, I remember the day they came to... White Hart Lane and, and again that day they deserved more than they got because they played us off the park that day so when we restarted and they suddenly looked like you know they were going to be slow out of the blocks and like as we said it did look like a team that were having the start of a second season syndrome where people had you know cottoned on to them um, the players weren't putting in the same sort of performances and you just thought it would be a real shame just to see them drop off the map now suddenly and kind of look at the end of the season as being eighth or ninth and just just go, oh, well, you know, yeah, we had a good start. So I'm actually really pleased they've picked it up. And again, they look like they're finding that form now that they had before the break, where they play some real good attacking football. You know, everything's done with some real intent. Um, and they've just got some hard working players in there. And you've got a fair shout to say that Chris Wilder really should be considered for manager of the year. You know, we know he won't get it. I'm sure that will go to, to Klopp. Um, but for me, when you consider what he's achieved with that squad and that club, he deserves that accolade more than anyone. Matthew, if we look at the Sheffield United squad and Chris Wilder, 
how do they evolve next season? Because there's almost a sense that they've hit an upper ceiling already, quite a high ceiling that is, and you want to make additions to any team, but you need to be careful not to gut it either and lose what has made you so successful over that journey. So what tinkering should or what tinkering can Chris Wilder do in the summer? Um, there needs to be a few changes. Before I do that, though, I want to say, if we're using reverse psychology on this podcast, I need you to say that Brentford are the greatest team that ever kicked a football. I will pay you every single penny in my bank account for you to say that because I want you to derail their season. Um, okay, so yeah. could you please... Do you want to do it now? Please, just so get out of the way, please. Brentford are the greatest football club in the world. There you go. Sorry, Brentford fans, your dreams are scuppered. So. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Checks, thank you, checks in the post. Um, but yeah, back to but back to Sheffield United. I think it's going to be a case of minor tweaks. You don't want to go through, you know, and basically sack the whole squad off like you know, like Fulham did when we got promoted last year and spent a hundred million and made I think like six changes to the starting lineup. I think it just needs to be one, you know, one or two. Um, ideally, we don't know what's going to happen with Dean Henderson. Uh, that could be you know one change. Find find yourself a proper goalkeeper to replace him if he doesn't come back. Um, Billy Sharp and David McGoldrick, even though they've signed new contracts, the the amount of goals that they've got, I don't think you're going to be able to sustain that for you know for another for another season. It's especially if they end up in multiple competitions with you know with Europe uh, potentially on the horizon. So maybe get yourself another goal scorer there. Midfield, I think, pretty much runs itself. Uh, ben Osborne has come in in place of John Fleck and done a fantastic job in his absence. Uh, same for John Lundstrom, who's got injured as well. There doesn't need to be wholesale changes, maybe one or two to the starting lineup and then just add depth because that's really what's going to what's gonna cause big issues for them next season. They've got a few veterans in reserve like Phil Jagielka and uh, there's another, there's, there's a forward whose name's escaping me right now. Luke Freeman, I think it is. Um, they've got a lot of veterans who can, you know, can play the odd game in the cup when you want to rest players. But if you want to really have a successful season, you're going to need more, you're going to need more players than that. So I think really just adding depth rather than adding to the starting 11. I think that's really what Sheffield United need to be doing. Yeah. I think, it's very I, I think the goalkeeper one is going to be an interesting one as well from yeah. next season, isn't it? Because there's a good chance they could lose the guy who's been brilliant for them this season in goal. You know, you either can assume United may want to suddenly look at using him more often. You know, might have a bigger side come in and say, well, we're looking for a number one. Um, you know, Chelsea could be a prime example if they're looking for, a, you know, a new number one. So if you suddenly lose a great goalkeeper for you, that can cause you a real problem as well. Well, Dean Henderson, obviously employed by Man United, and we'll go back to that game now. So, Matthew, my theory was that going into the game, Oli had named a unchanged team for the fifth game in a row in the league, which was the first time that's happened in United Colours since the early 90s. So with the fixture schedule being so punishing as it is, do you think it was sense of time finally catching up with him that was just more down to fatigue rather than poor performance? Uh, I think there is there is that argument there. Although I think it needs to be said, Oli Oli Sasha has sort of been a bit strange with how he's handled the squad because he was the one who made five substitutions at the same time against Sheffield United. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. So his handling of the squad has been sort of suspect. Um, but at the same time, they've they've picked up form. So why would you really want to change your winning formula, as it were? So I don't really have many you know major gripes. With the with the way that Solskjaer set up, it could it could be fatigue, who knows? Maybe it could just be the Southampton are you know Southampton have done a fantastic job considering where they were and, and you know with Hassan Hutel, you you're never going to get you're never going to 
have a never going to lie. Uh, the team is never going to lay down and quit under him. So probably just a case of wariness of that. No, so I don't, I, I'm not going to sort of uh, have a go at Oli Gunsolshar for the way um, for the way he uh, picked his team out. You can really just put the whole thing on Harry Maguire marking Paul Pogba at the, at the corner rather than the opposition. You know, if he if he'd have just done his job, then we wouldn't be uh, asking this question. Well, it's funny you should mention Paul Pogba because you could also argue he was at fault for the first goal. And Cole Matthew is right. It's always easy to sort of sort of look at a bigger team and say why they've done stuff wrong. But we should really give credit to Southampton as well. So Paul Pogba gets his pocket picked and then a combination of Ings and Redmond gives Stuart Armstrong the perfect opportunity to put the Saints in the lead. Yeah, it was a nice goal, wasn't it? Because as you say, you know, the ball goes to Pogba and it'd be easy for those players to switch off and kind of just start dropping back. But they don't, you know, they get right in your face. They, they harry you. And as you say they managed to kind of nick it off Pogba and then it's calmed and, you know, clever play after that. You know, you spot the man at the far post who's going to be free. It's a perfect ball to him. Great control and great finish. And, you know, that goal did come in. You know, you kind of thought, wow, hold on a minute. Here we go. Um, This could be interesting because Southampton have had some really great results. You know, the turnaround since that Leicester game uh, has been unbelievable Um, and full credit to them because they've all been part of that and and they're playing some decent football. And, you know, once that goal went in, you kind of thought, oh, could this be a bit too early? United possibly can still get themselves going. Um, but I, I say, you know, I really like watching Southampton at the moment. They're a good side, give their all, um, and they're well worth their money a lot of the time. Well, this is it, because Southampton now, I'm beating him four. Now, obviously, Matthew, their run doesn't mean too much in the grand scheme of things with the league table being as it is, although with the next season coming around quite quickly, a strong end could also mean a strong start next time around. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's going to be really fascinating to see with the quick turnaround and also the transfer market, um, because I know there's a vote going on either soon or today about how long that's going to uh, play into the season. So, yeah, it is something that's going to be, you know, momentum and trying to keep the team the same. For a team like Southampton, who probably want to progress from, you know, relegation fears last season to, you know, moving up the table this season. They're probably going to have ambitions with Hasanutal to take that next step forward and probably be challenging for one of those European places. So the momentum that they're going to gather now and take that into next season, maybe with a few changes, we don't know. I don't know know, if there's any... Uh, Liverpool are going to do their usual rating of Southampton once again. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how they deal with the end of this season and then carry that on into next year because it uh, could, you know, good start there could very well uh, play dividends in the future. It's always interesting how Southampton, how they can progress. I know we mentioned this before, but you look at their sort of ceiling as a club and, of course, not everyone can be competing for the top six or the top eight, but with a manager like Harsen Hootall, there is, I guess, a sense of could this be the man, Carl? Can we finally get higher up the table and really sort of bloody the nose of bigger clubs? Because he's a man who looks quite progressive. That four-two-two-two formation is new. It's sort of fresh and exciting. So things are starting to slowly turn around for the Saints, isn't it? Yeah, they are. Um, I guess the problem you've always got there is as good as a manager he clearly looks to be, the problem you've always got, as we're saying, is other big fish swimming around their little pond going, hmm, Danny Ings. He's looking really good at the moment. You know, it looks like he's recovered fully from those injuries that really held him back at Liverpool. And, you know, you've, you could have teams there suddenly like Everton, um, you know, not be funny, Spurs are always looking for a backup striker. 
Um, so the key is, can they keep hold of those key players? You know, Ward Prowse, there looks a player who could go and play a level above than he is at the moment. Um, and you just kind of think every season that Southampton have one of these players that comes out and has a real standout season, the manager must think, I'm probably going to lose him in the summer because the bigger teams will come along. The club need the money as such or, or won't be able to resist the money. And then I lose a real key player. And, you know, they've probably got a transfer policy where they're looking to bring in those younger players who may have a potential with a big sell on. So you're never going to get the ready made kind of product when you do that. Um, and then you're kind of back to square one again. So, it's you know, you go two forward and then three back suddenly um, and you can never really seem to get much i don't know you know you can never seem to get much momentum going long term and build so i think that's going to be their problem again you know it, if someone doesn't nick danny ings can he go and have the, the sort of season he's had again the following season um it's real interesting they've got the right man i think in charge so if they can just do the right business in the summer they should be able to start off and hit the ground running again Matthew, that business might be as integral as keeping Danny Ings at the club. Can they achieve that objective? Um, I think they can, but I, I just want to take a slight issue with what Carl said. Not, 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 not in, crit, in a critical way, but I think Southampton are in a situation where, you know, you talked about the money. Do they really need the money with what's going on in the Premier League? I look back to uh, Wilfred Zaha last season. Uh, no, Man United spending, maybe Man United, maybe in Arsenal, maybe but more or less every single club in the world wanting to buy him. And I know a lot of the journalists were saying, why do they? They don't need to sell him now, because yeah, they may get the fifty million or whatever it is for Zaha, but they'd much rather keep him and then get the hundred million that you get for staying in the Premier League every year. And I think Southampton may be in a similar situation. You know, why sell James Ward-Prowse for? 35 million, say, to Arsenal, say, when they can just say, right, we'll give you another 20,000 a week in, you know, in your pay packet, uh, taken from the money that we get from being in the Premier League and just move and just move forward from there. The only thing that I would be concerned, and you talk about players moving on, I do quite think if there's maybe another Pochettino situation in here and not, not, not specifically Spurs, because I know Jose Mourinho has been a little bit under pressure shall we say. But I do think, you know, Carl said they have the man to do it in Hassan Hussle. I think keeping hold of him is probably going to be more important than keeping hold of any of their players. Yeah, I mean, after being pumped 9-0 by Leicester, all of a sudden he's in that bracket of managers who are the next big thing, like Nuno Spirito Santo and Ralph. You could have said Eddie Howe 12 months ago, but that's not the, the part anymore. So yeah, it might not be a case of having to sell players or big clubs sharking round the likes of Ings and Ward-Prowse. It might be a case of, actually, our manager's gone. Let's get the Austrian in and go again. And then that might be the tailspin that sets Southampton back again. And because of that, they're always sort of treading water and caught in that cycle where they can't quite get to the next level. But that said, it's a level that the teams below them would love to be at. Because not only was it a fascinating week in the race of the top four, it was a fascinating battle for relegation. In a week where the four teams in the biggest danger, they all won. And four seems to be the magic number, Carl, because Mikel Antonio got four goals against Norwich. Yeah, the, you know, I, I do like Antonio. You know, I do think he's a good player who kind of gives his all. Um, but I think it just kind of sums up Norwich, didn't it? You know, they were gone, I think. The heads were down. Um, the results were showing that they, they had very little to offer. 
um, and defensively very weak. You know, the goals have dried up for Puki, um, and we've just seen there that now I think they're on a hiding to nothing in their remaining games. Uh, and if you've got Norwich as one of your fixtures, you'll be rubbing your hands thinking, yes, that's a game where we should, in theory, could notch up and help our goal difference. I can't see them picking up many more points. And it was always going to be the problem. You know, if you don't have regular goals going in and you can't keep clean sheets, you don't often survive in this league, unfortunately. This is it, Matthew. They didn't necessarily disgrace themselves, the weekend aside perhaps, but it really has been a case of men versus boys all too often. And with seven straight defeats for Norwich... They've now sort of crawled meekly back to the AFL Championship, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I'm. I was, I was reading some. I was reading some today. Uh, someone was basically pointing out the fact that they only spent a million pound in the summer, and I don't really think we should really be judging Norwich now on what they did because I think they're very much in the same mould as what Burnley did a couple of years ago, which was get promoted, take the money that you know you get from the Premier League and the parachute payments and everything that, go down and then use that money that you got to build a squad to maybe compete. And we've seen what that's done with Burnley. So I don't think we should really be judging Norwich too harshly on what they've done unless they go and pull, you know, a Leeds or a Nottingham Forest or a Portsmouth and slide down the divisions, which I don't think I don't think is uh, possible in this day and age, although Huddersfield are trying their very best to try and do it in the championship. So yeah, I don't I'm not gonna you know, criticize too uh, Norwich too much because I think this this is very much a long term thing. Because the fact that they, they showed they're gonna stick with Daniel Fark through all this. So they very much see him as the man to, you know, to keep them going, as it were. So I think maybe let's you know re- reassess this season in a couple of years' time when we see if you know if this long-term project was any good for them. That is a good point. But Carl, at the same time, aren't they already sort of part of an upward cycle? Because they were in the Premier League under Alex Neil, got relegated, would have taken a bundle of cash then, then got promoted. So this is sort of second time around. They've not really had a crack. And if they sort of go down to come back up again, you then wonder, will they just not have a crack again and just sort of meekly be part of a 20-man club but not really spend any money. Yeah, I, you know, this is such a hard one, isn't it? Because, as I say, they do have some really good players there. You know, people like Campwell, um, you've got Pookie, obviously. You know, Aaron's and that. I guess the problem is, what can they keep um, next season? Because there are plenty of people eyeing up some of those young players with a view to taking them on. You can see possibly those young players sitting there knowing they're knowing they've got suitors looking at them, thinking, well, I'll push for a move in the summer. And then it is a case of how well do you, you know, kind of recruit again? Can you recruit and get players in at that level? And you just, I suppose what you don't want to get is stuck into this situation of one season up, one back down, one up, one down, where you never really seem to progress. progress. And I guess that's the hardest thing, isn't it? I like the manager. And, you know, as Matthew said, I think they'll stick with him. And you could see that if they can keep some of their real key players for one more season, they could come back up again. And you never know. Maybe if they've got some experience, if they spend a little bit more money, um, then they might be able to survive. Survive. They really should be able to do what Bournemouth have been doing over the last few years. You know, when you consider they've got a better structure around them than what Bournemouth have. So they should really have been able to come up and and maybe do what Bournemouth were doing and stay up and just keep themselves in that kind of mid-table position. Um, But it'd be interesting. I think it's a real key to see how many players they possibly lose in the summer as to how they kind of bounce back. Matthew, one of those players could be Todd Cantwell. Can he do a job further up the Premier League chain? 
Yeah, you say further you say further chain up the Premier League chain. I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of clubs are looking for him. I can't see him, you know, going to somewhere like Man United or Arsenal, for instance. Maybe I was gonna I was gonna say maybe go to Bournemouth because I keep thinking they're a you know they're a mid table team that all the young players go to to develop, but they've gone they've uh, slipped down this season. So maybe a Newcastle, maybe an Everton. It, it'll be interesting to see what size uh, clubs go go after him because I think that will also dictate the amount of money that you know Norwich will be able to will be able to attract for him. I'd imagine Brighton. They seem to like to pick off the sort of cherry picked players of relegated clubs. Aaron Moy from Huddersfield being an example. So. That's my, I guess, theory. Like you say, Matthew, it could be Bournemouth, but they're probably in the same boat, which we'll get to in a moment. But not only was there a win for West Ham, there was, of course, a win for Watford. And Cole, after they went behind to a Dwight Gale goal, the second half was much different. And Troy Deeney scored not one, but two penalties. And that's a massive win for the Hornets. Yeah, I think that's the win. For, for me, I think, you know, West Ham and Watford have now done enough to keep themselves in the league, I would say. And Watford, definitely, you know, that was a huge win. You know, when they went that goal down, you suddenly thought, oh, hold on, because, you know, if you slip up now, this does still keep you really in the mire. Um, good comeback, I guess, good character. Um Two reasonable penalties, you know, when you look at them, the goalkeeper was so close to both of them, wasn't he? You know, if he just get his toe a little bit higher, he possibly can stop either one of them. Um, and obviously, the, whether they whether one of them was a penalty or not, I'm sure we might get into because you know, I think there was a real disgusting decision given, <laughs> given for the, one of those penalties. But... Like as you say, in terms of safety, I think Watford and West Ham have just done enough and I think they'll still have enough in them to keep themselves safe this season. Yes, of those decisions, Matthew, how much umbrage will Newcastle take from them? Um, not really a lot. Are the Newcastle really fighting for anything at this stage? Should they really should they really be care? Shouldn't they be on the beach? I think the only thing they really could be taking umbrage with is the fact that maybe it takes out of their win bonus for the game that that should that should that should really be it Newcastle are very much a team on the beach so and I do know that Newcastle United and Aston Villa do have a bit of a relationship shall we say because it was you know the whole sub on the tie who's your next hero Antor Deck thing from a couple of years ago so I do have a Newcastle United friend of mine who did say there is that slight part that felt you know, let Watford uh, win this game because it will help. You know, help relegate Aston Villa and sort of reignite that rivalry if it was. And it and it is fitting that Troy Deeney, who is a very uh, well-known Birmingham City fan, uh, scored the goals that could, in theory, could theoretically have sent more or less sealed Birmingham uh, Aston Villa's fate over the weekend. So just a shame that Aston Villa went and spoiled that, shall we say? I think West Ham and Watford would have been breathing easier by the end of Saturday, but then. They can't quite relax just yet, Carl, because obviously we talk about teams being on the beach. I think Roy Hodgson's got the Hawaiians and a pair of sunglasses on because that's now five straight defeats for Crystal Palace. And if there was ever a team to play them at the right time, Aston Villa found that on Sunday. Yeah, oh, you know, like you said, Dan, I would love to see Roy come out <laughs> with a pair of, you know, shorts, you know, Bermuda shirt on, nice cigar for the next game. Because as you say, I think... We always knew, didn't we, in the restart come, if you're a team where suddenly now your season is kind of, you are safe, you're not in danger, you've not got nothing to fight for, there was always that fear that you would have some teams who just say, you know, they're on the beach and they can't seem to get themselves going. Um, 
get themselves going much during the restart and you wouldn't mind playing them. And as you say, I think Palace are another side now that if you've got them in your fixtures that are remaining, you're kind of thinking, yep, yeah, there's there's some free points we can get because that's a team probably just going through the motions at the moment. Um, they were unlucky, weren't they? You know, the first goal, in my opinion, if, if that goal stands as it should do, then obviously would have been interested to see how the game plays out. Um, but then after that, they offered very little. You know, I think the most dangerous Ben Teke was was after the final whistle when he's kicking out at people because he doesn't seem to be very, you know, frightening during a game. Um, but yeah, a good result for Villa. Um, but Palace, pretty poor. And I think they are really just looking forward to next season getting this one over with. Yeah, it can't come quick enough for them. And Matthew, we mentioned Bournemouth a little bit higher up the show, but that was more from a Leicester point of view. So let's look at them. Obviously, with the three teams around them all winning, they get into Sunday evening and think, God, we've really got a final performance now. They did. No doubt a timely victory. And although there is some semblance of hope, you do get the feeling it's just a little bit too much of a task for Eddie Howe's men. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and I've said I've said this about Fulham and their you know, kick-up of form uh, in the past couple of games. I think it... It was one of those games and one of those moments with all the results going on around them. The Bournemouth finally said, hang on, shit just got real, essentially. Um, so I think that's I think that's really what's all motivated. I mean, admittedly, they did fall into, as I said earlier, Leicester City having their one bad game that they're allowed to, you know, stars aligned perfectly for them. And well done on them for taking advantage of it. And I, I think what's going to be most important, rather than the um, the fact that they won, is I think the fact they won by three goals, which is in, in the world of uh, goal difference, which this could very well come down to, that could be absolutely crucial, winning by 4-1 rather than just 2-1. Because as I look at the table now, even even though they're three points behind Watford, they're they're only three uh, goal differential of Watford as well. And so if they'd have won that, now again, if they'd have won that 2-1, they'd have been five behind. So every little thing that's going to give them that little bit of hope to think they can stay up, I think they're going to need. So, you know, full credit to them for taking advantage of it. Well, this weekend, or whenever in this game week, I don't know when it is, that comes so thick and fast, we've got West Ham versus Watford, Cole. Now, we love a relegation six points up. They don't get much bigger than this one. No, that'll be a huge game, won't it? Um, you, know, you would think potentially West Ham now will probably be the team breathing a you know a bigger sigh of relief and probably thinking they've done enough. Um, but that I, I, it won't be a classic. Let's put it that way. It won't be one that you'll watch for the purists and go, "This will be some enjoyable football." But you know, with Antonio, West Ham have got dangerous. You know, they've not been playing too bad either, West Ham. So I could see West Watford possibly struggling there. But if they get a result in that one, then, you know, I think that season's, you know, I think that is the kind of final now in Bournemouth and Villa's coffin. Well, Aston Villa have got to go to West Ham on the final day. Matthew, do you think there's going to be any life in the West Midlanders by that point or will it be done and dusted by them? I... There is part of me that wants it to because well, the idea wants, yeah, of he wants it. He wants yeah, everyone wants it to. Yeah. yeah, the idea of West Ham versus Aston Villa, with no loser goes down. I think the script writes itself and will be the most watched Premier League game of all time because of you know the size of the two clubs. In terms of what the, I, I, I don't know with Aston Villa because they've just been far too they've been far too choppy and chair. You know, as Carl said, if that first goal goes in from Crystal Palace, I think it's a whole different story. I think they got a you know a huge sigh of relief with that goal being disallowed and that allowed them to kick on. Will that be able to you know, will they be you know lucky 
no, to use extent, because they got lucky with the, you know, with the Oliver Norwood free kick in the first game back. That luck is going to have to run out sometime. Uh, you just wonder whether or not it's going to run out in the next game, or if it's going to run out on the final day of the season. You just don't know. With, you just don't know with this Aston Villa side. I think, yeah, by the last day, unfortunately, as much as the scriptwriters would love that, I just don't feel there's going to be anything left to sort of fight over. It'll probably be up the table with the European places. But there's a mid-table team we haven't really mentioned in the last couple of weeks. They haven't really deserved much for mention. That being Everton, their pre-season has almost started. It's happening now in front of us. I want to sort of quickly talk about goalkeepers and, more importantly, the England number 1 jersey. Because in a week where you've seen Nick Pope have two great games against West Ham and Liverpool and you've seen Jordan Pickford nearly shit the bed again, luckily sort of scratched it back, but conceded a fair few goals against Wolves. Cole, if you were picking your England team right now, if the Euros was on, who would be going in between the sticks? Yeah, I don't think, um, for me, I would be picking Pope, I think, given his experience um, and the way he's been playing. I certainly wouldn't be picking Pickford right now because, you know, Pickford is starting to really remind me of Joe Hart. Um, you know, goalkeeper who kind of burst on the scene was looking really good. Um, but now you're just seeing this guy who sometimes you just kind of get the impression that he's, like, he's so hyped up that he that actually distracts him from his game and, and you know, removes that concentration sometimes that a goalkeeper needs. Um, you know, he's probably trying to think too far ahead all the time as well. So when a shot's coming in, he's already busy thinking about his throw or kick out. And it's actually like, no, just, just catch the ball first because it's now gone through your hands because you're too busy focusing on something else. Um, I just think he's too erratic. Um, and I think he has to really be careful that he doesn't fall into the Joe Hart mould here where suddenly, you know, he was looking really promising, started believing a little bit in his hype, started getting too confident, stopped doing the basics and the simple things that made him good. And before you know it, he could slowly start disappearing because he is costing Everton games. And I you know, can't see a manager like Ancelotti possibly you know, hanging around too much if he thinks you've got a weak link there that's going to throw your points away every week. I couldn't agree with that assessment anymore. But Matthew, what about yourself, mate? Are we really talking about the England squad a year out from the Euros? No, no. no just, have, we, have we come to that? No, I just mean in, in the sense that Jordan Pickford is on the wane, really. Not, it's not really about England, but I just feel if you were making a call now or you wanted to pick England's number one goalkeeper, I don't think it's Jordan Pickford. And I think Carl's nail on head is in danger of his career getting quite negatively quite quickly. And it goes a lot of way to goalkeepers, actually. Someone in my head popped up the other day. What on earth has happened to Jack Butland, Matthew? Can you answer that? Oh, Jack Butland is just a victim of a terrible Stoke City side and everything that's crumbling, everything crumbling around him, which sort of leads me on to the point. I was going to make the point about Dean Henderson. You know, Dean Henderson, it it does seem like a straight fight between Dean Henderson and Nick Pope to be the England number one now. It it seems like. For all we know, Dean Henderson could, and Sheffield United could have a terrible season next year because they won't adjust to European football. They start sliding that table. All of a sudden, the Dean Henderson for England talk just skips away. Similar as we have with Jordan Pickford. You know, all of a sudden, a bad, a bad turn of form. All of a sudden, he's no longer the England number one goalkeeper. So it's a bit, it's a bit harsh to be talking about you know the England squad when their next game isn't for what September, I think the England squad. Yeah. Next England game, I, no, I, I don't. I'd, yeah, I'd, international football is just bugging <laughs> off completely in, in the grand in the grand scheme of things. Um, but yeah, Jordan Pickford. 
am I the only one that thinks he wasn't really all that good to start with? Because he was, because when he was with Sunderland, they finished bottom of the table, and yet for somehow he was worth thirty million pounds, and yet when he was playing for England. Did he do anything really that spectacular apart from one save against Colombia? Was he really all that good, if we're being brutally honest? Or was he just, again, just surrounded by a decent team in front of him that made him look good? I think there's that. I think with Sutherland, it's the fact that you're you're young. You've probably stopped them from having a horrendous season. So you're young, you're English, you're a goalkeeper. All that kind of goes into the melting pot, that kind of tax that comes with a transfer fee. Bad recruitment, you could also argue. And yeah, I don't... There's more negatives than positives. I think he'll always have that moment in the World Cup in 2018. But it's like Lucas Moura for Spurs. That he'll always have that night in Amsterdam. But when you look at him consistently over the course of 12, 18 months, there's very few actual positives to sort of take from his game. So if I'm picking it now, it's definitely a straight fight between Pope and Henderson. That's a really difficult argument to make. I think you could quite easily have either of those. But Pickford, you're looking at number three. And if Carl says if his trajectory continues downwards, that maybe two years down the line, or even maybe by, by the Euros next season... He might not even be in the England squad, but that's something we won't know for twelve months' time. Right. Don't that... rule out don't rule out Tom Heaton as well when he gets back from his injury. He he's probably oh, yeah. he's probably gonna be in the discussion as well. We could. I mean, how old is he now? Thirty four? Is he? Thirty four? I don't know. I don't What's He's it? older than I thought he was. He's he's one of these players that just burst on the scene. I assumed he was in his mid twenties. Tom Heaton, no, he's quite an older statesman, Cole, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Um I, I like as you say, I think Unfortunately for him, I think he's probably going to come too too late in the mix. I think you know he's one of them right now. He's a, he's a good performer um, and has been doing really well. And he you know he is in the England squad, but you say he is thirty four. Um, so I just think by the time another year comes along, I, I and and let's face it, I think you have got to start looking at the future, haven't you? And seeing right who who's there, who you know possibly is going to have a future as the number one. So I think for Tom, it's probably just going to be a year too late. I think maybe if he'd stayed in form this season and we'd had the Euros in the summer, I think he would have made the squad definitely. Right, on that note, I think I need to wrap things up because we've lit pretty much hit full-time right now. So, the admin is as simple as thanking my co-host for this week. Matthew, thanks for stepping back into the fold. A seamless transition back to first-team podcasting. No worries. Always a pleasure, as I always say. Cheers, buddy. And, Carl, thanks for holding it all together. Pleasure as always, mate. Cheers, Dan. Really enjoyed this one and good to speak to Matthew again. Fantastic. Right, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.